Watching Norris in there gave me the idea that maybe every part of him was a whole. Every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. No blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive. Episode 102 of the Cult of Matt Mark Cult Film Review Podcast. I'm Matt. My Mark. Make sure to hit our blog at cultfilmreview.blogspot.com or shoot us an email at cultfilmreview at gmail.com. Show news? Any show news this week? What well, was the New Year's this week? And boy, I brought it in something special. I took a nap on the couch, got up about 11.45. And, uh, you know, amazing, there was only one local news station doing the uh, uh, New Year's at the Needle. Oh, year. well, it was, it was it like got, it was just Como four. I think everybody else one. I think seven was showing some reap run of like CSI <laughs> right. and five had the delayed uh, uh, New York City one. Which I can't oh. watch. Yeah, that's watch, really lame. Especially it's got Kathy Lee Giffords there. Oh, fuck. And Mr. Gay newscaster. What's his name? Anderson Pooper. Yeah, Anderson Pooper and Kathy Griffith. That uh, is last like, year uh, was pretty awesome. Did you see? No, that thanks. One? Yeah, <laughs> but with uh, who? who is it? Uh, who is the? Uh, uh, Kathy Lee Gifford. Yeah, did I not say Kathy Gifford? I think you said Kate, Kathy Griffith. Oh, did I say did yeah. I say Griffith? Yeah, no, I mean, okay. no, hold it. Is that right, Gifford? There's Gifford, who is uh, of the old uh, morning show with. No, uh, it's 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 the one that's my life on the D list with the oh. red hair that had all the plastic surgery and now it looks. Oh. Like a, she used to look like a four, now she looks like a six or a seven. Yeah, yeah. And she's in like incredible physical shape. Right, she got but, like the hardest body of any like forty-eight-year-old woman on the planet. Yeah, that's that's right up your alley. Why didn't you find that interesting? Uh, <laughs> have silly banter with Anderson Cooper? No thanks. Man. I thought that stuff was like the stuff of legends last year. Like the people were showing YouTube clips of it and everything. There was there was some crazy uh, witty banter between uptight gay Anderson Cooper and flamboyant, not gay Katie Griffith. I thought that was like sort of a, a chemistry that everybody really loved. Well, I think, I think it is a chemistry people like, because I think Anderson Cooper's sort of the cute boy and he doesn't, he, he likes to be naughty, but he doesn't like to be naughty. If you right. know what I mean? Well, and Kathy Liff Gifford's no, she doesn't mind talking about her cunt and stuff like that. You say K- Katie Griffith, you say Kathy Lee Gifford, which is something completely different. Oh, did I? Oh, I can't tell them apart. That's okay. Well, <laughs> what is her name? <laughs> They're again? both Katie redheads. Griffith? Uh, Katie Griffith or something right. like that. Whatever. All right. Uh, I watched The Hobbit on Monday. The uh, Desolation of Smaug. I've been pronouncing it wrong my whole life. Uh, I pronounced it as if it was the pollutant smog. But it is, according to the film, Smaug. So, so I'm a little confused. I mean, it's been a while since I read The Hobbit. But don't they, isn't the whole Smaug business right at the end of the book? I mean, they go in... Uh, 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 Bilba goes in, sneaks in, and has sort of a, a tete-a-tete with Smaug. And right. then there's the big fight at Lake Town against Smaug. Right. Uh, so uh, what, are they making making up a th- another third of the story? Well. Uh, that's all over with? Spoilers alert, fans and friends. Although, come on. If you haven't read the fucking novel, The Hobbit, 
by the age of 13 you should really i don't know go back to junior high but the uh, Hobbit's like it's one of those stories that you could. It's just such a classic story you could read it over and over again. It, there's not nothing to spoil there. It's just a great little story. They turned the whole okay. There's the witty banter with Frodo, Frodo, uh, Bilbo, and and Smaug. That's how I'm pronouncing it. Uh, inside the lair, uh, and then the dragon gets PO'd. Yeah, uh, and then he takes off, leaving okay. Bilbo kind of alone in the lair. And then goes out and fries Lake Town. Yeah, there's right? the Lake Town battle, and then the the great bowman shoots uh, Smaug through the yeah. heart. Right? Well, that's all there, but but what you get is this gigantic, epic dwarf dragon battle inside the empty dwarven city for the last half hour. Makes no sense whatsoever. And then Smaug fights directly with. When there's the battle of three armies after the Smaug business. Oh, I guess that's what's going to be in the the final movie. It's it's just it's just kind of painful. I I don't know what to say. Uh, The the Hobbit's such a subtle book. I mean, it it it, it's not flamboyant and over the top and actiony like the movie, which is sort of for somebody like me who likes a little subtlety in film every now and then. uh, The second uh, sequel. I guess of well, okay. The second installment of the trilogy of the Hobbit, if you will, it just kind of fell flat. wasn't a big fan. So. Well, at least they brought Legolas back in his rightful <laughs> position in the Hobbit. You know, one the one thing I can't figure out is I've seen pictures of of the movie online, and why do all the dwarves look like they're five foot ten guys from Portland? <laughs> but the, well, and why do they? I don't, I don't understand that. Why, why does Oakenshield not have a beard, or he has some like a extreme five o'clock shadow? Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure those guys have huge beards, and if you ever shave them off, you might as well cut, be cutting their balls off. As opposed to looking like an artisan uh, butcher or uh, a sandwich could, artist at Quiznos. Yes. <laughs> The Portland uh, hipster chic, you're saying? That's why yeah, well, they look that I, way? I'm sorry, why don't they have beards? Uh, I don't know, mixing it up so you can identify all 14 of them or however Well, that's many part of the are. joke is that you can't tell them apart. I know, yeah, and they all have rhyming names and it's just a, a literary mess if you wanted to try to, uh, I guess, detail the actions of one individual character in a book that's like 150 pages. I don't know. Anyway, uh, but it's like in, it's like the, all those movies. You, you go see it anyway, and you're entertained for what two and a half hours, and then you're done with it, and you don't think about it much after that. So, mm, yeah, uh, I don't know. I can't quite I can't quite bring myself to spend eighteen dollars to go see that thing, even though I like the idea of the forty eight frames per second, and I think that anybody who doesn't like that is a big pussy. Yeah, big pussies. <laughs> but uh, okay. other than that, I, I don't want to go see it. All right. Okay, so this week our movie is the classic 1982 John Carpenter's The Thing. Plot rundown, and I beseech you patience, I couldn't find the right plot rundown that suited me. So it may be a little wordy, but it's not overly wordy, so bear with me. Can we cut this short? It's going on and on. Okay. The film opens enigmatically with a Siberian husky running through the Antarctic tundra. There's actually no tundra in Antarctica, but whatever. Chased by two men in a helicopter firing at it from above. (laughs) Even after the dog finds shelter at an American research outpost, the men in the helicopter land and keep shooting. 
One of the Norwegians drops a grenade and blows himself up in the helicopter to pieces. The other is shot dead in the snow by Gary, the American outpost captain. American helicopter pilot McCready and camp doctor Copper fly off to find the Norwegian base and discover some pretty strange goings-on. The base is in ruins, and the only occupants are a man frozen to a chair and the burned remains of what could be one man or several men. In a side room, Copper and McCready find a coffin-like block of ice from which something has been recently cut. That night at the American base, the husky changes into the thing, and the Americans learn firsthand that the creature has the ability to mutate into anything it kills. For the rest of the film, the men fight a losing battle against it, never knowing if... One or their one of their own. Wait a minute. Knowing if one of their own dwindling number is the thing in disguise. So there you have it. I think anybody who's listening to this has seen the fucking thing by John Carpenter. I would sincerely hope it's one of the classic '80s sci-fi creature features. I think and I can't name a better one from that era. There's Alien, but then there's this. So. Yeah, it's it's right up there in the stratosphere with Alien. It doesn't have quite the poetry of Alien. Uh, no. I think it makes some mis- more missteps than Alien, but uh, it's right up there. It's so, at least it's at least it's number two. So uh, I haven't read it. Shame on me. The novella by uh, Campbell, John W. Campbell, who goes there, is. I guess one of the best sci-fi novellas of all time written back in 1938. It was a pulp novel. And John Carpenter's film follows that original novella way more closely than the 1951 The Thing from Another World adaptation. Have you ever seen that? I've never seen that. No, it looks... I think I watched a few clips of it. It's really cheesy. Uh, The whole... Uh, it, it's like some plant guy monster. It's just really stupid. It looked dumb. Oh, it and, doesn't take place in Antarctica? No, it's like the Arctic instead or something like that. Uh, well, it's, I mean, it's probably made sense, I guess. Yeah, well, people are more familiar with the Arctic, right? No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, so this movie, uh, I and I read the at least the Wikipedia plot rundown of the novella, and there's some minor differences, but it gets it kind of right. It gets definitely the paranoia. Right, and how the creature moves through the camp, uh, assimilating all the characters and the paranoia and all that kind of stuff. It seems to kind of get all that stuff right. So uh, I think this is a much more pure version of that original novel. So, Well, that's good. I mean, uh, the tension in this movie is just pitch perfect so many times, over and over and over again. That's... Uh, it's always it's always incredible that uh, they're able to go through these cycles of, of paranoia and tension over and over again without it getting old, all the way to the very last closing scene of the movie. Right. So there's a lot of meat on the bone, I think. That's my opinion on this movie. And so since Mark and I do not prepare a broadcast beforehand, <laughs> I was going to query you and see uh, how we should kind of... Uh, delve into the thing. There's a few things since you're a biochemist and know way more bio- biology than me. Uh, one topic I wanted to talk about was sure. the plausibility, viability of the, uh, I guess it's the alien, the alien virus, if you will. The, uh, I, I mean, I think a virus is a bad term to use, and they don't use that term. I don't. I don't believe no. they use that term in this movie. They use it in the in the sequel, or the prequel. Oh, 
Did you watch the prequel? I did watch the prequel. Did you did you do what I told you to do and watched it after you watched? I this? did. I did. I watched it right after, as a matter of fact. Mm. Good I man, following doctor's orders. Stretch. Yeah. So, um, going back to your original question, we can we can come back to the prequel. That's I fine. I don't remember much about it, but but go on with my original question. Um, well, the whole idea that you know can be something be naturally evolve or uh, be engineered to um, have the amazing abilities, well, biochemical abilities that the thing seems to possess. Let's. I mean, I guess. I Let's mean, I break guess it's it down to the realm of possibility. Well, okay, that's what I was wondering. I, I was thinking: is there some entropy energy argument that this whole thing violates? Is there some? Well, there's there's certainly that. I mean, at least from what we see, the uh, the being the thing seems to be able to create a lot of biomass out of very little. It, it seems to be able to expend quite a bit more energy than it could possibly be taking up itself so i mean from that point you can't really argue with thermodynamics uh if we put that outside that it can transmutate flesh i mean it's something we do on a daily basis obviously in a much more limited but no less amazingly intricate uh fashion i mean the our ability to biosynthesize materials i mean do you know how to change uh, a protein chain into glucose uh, no, I, I yes, you I do. Done, Your I body do? does it. Oh shit! Wow, look at I'm fucking good. I didn't even know I did that. <laughs> so I'm able to do that. That's cool. Um, so okay, so from your perspective, there's no like Star Trek uh, esque violations of fundamental science that's going on, at least with the alien biology the way you saw it or at least it was hinted at in the film we don't have to like I mean, explain what's not there but is no there... i mean it's it's not terribly impulsive from sort of a mass energy standpoint it's a little hairy okay. but uh i mean who knows what great design went into this i mean things can be biological chemicals can be transmuted certainly not as rapidly as we've seen at least not on this planet but uh, i think it's you know maybe it can well, be engineered what i i think one of the reasons that I think The Thing is such a seminal monster movie is because we really haven't seen a monster like The Thing prior to this film, and we really haven't seen one since. Really? I mean, I don't have a huge backlog of monster movies. Monster movies not being my prime interest movie-wise. I mean, I enjoy the tension of this movie, but I'm not drawn to it because it's a monster movie, but... Wasn't the blob sort of like this? No, the blob, that old 50s movie. That's just yeah, kind of a silly Wasn't it like this yeah. great mass that absorbs? Isn't that, yeah, sort, of a, that that's sort of a similar, you know, Jake? Or, yeah, but this has, you can sense sort of a survival mechanism in this alien that uh, is similar, I think, to the xenomorph survival mechanism that, that has sort of a, a sketched out biology and life cycle that, took a lot of thought and i think the thing back in 1938 when when joseph campbell conceived of this alien um he broke the mold before there was even a mold and he thought of an alien in such a way that is we always think of aliens as like those little fucking big-headed big bug-eyed little midget creatures that come out of flying saucers. That's kind of where we start. And then we sort of extrapolate from there. And I've read a ton of science fiction, and many authors have 
attempted to come up with unique and bizarre aliens, and a lot of them are somewhat effective, but I don't think any are as effective as this, especially a malignant alien, an alien that's coming to destroy and, in this case, assimilate another biological organism, no matter what the fuck it is. It's like something almost pure Darwinian. It doesn't care whether it's a dog or a human. Uh, It will do whatever the fuck it needs to to propagate itself. Uh, The crazy thing I liked about the thing is that when it's changing, uh, when it's doing this assimilation thing where it just kind of explodes in this sort of DNA outburst, is that you get hints of what it has already accumulated before throughout the universe, things that obviously aren't on Antarctica, like those weird arachnid spiders. Like, shit's turning into fucking spiders left and right, you know? And I was just thinking, where the fuck did it pick that up? What kind of weird alien world had it, you know, assimilated prior to leaving? Uh, I thought was kind of a cool idea. And then you get all those dog parts uh, fused into uh, whatever the hell the thing is when it's sort of in mid-transition. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. The big globs of gooey horror. Right, yeah. Which is is fine. I mean, this movie, I mean, it's set in Antarctica. It's about this shapeless horror uh, that bends your mind. I mean, there's so much H.P. Lovecraft, even though he's not connected with this project, that is no wonder that it doesn't really uh, get us all excited. Yeah. Well, it, 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 I think, approaches more Lovecraft in cinema, even though, like you said, it's, it's not Lovecraft, than any other film, hence. Uh, it gets sort of this primal fear going, this uh, really super xenophobic fear and paranoia in your brain. And the only thing that I can think of film-wise that might have come close to this at one time is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which there's been various iterations of. I don't know if you ever saw. I I haven't seen any of those. Uh, I think the better one. There was one, I want to say recently, with Nicole Kidman, Yawn. I don't remember what the fuck, anything about it. But there was the one in the 80s with... uh, how was it? Uh, shit. Uh, Donald Pleasance? Yeah, Donald Pleasance. Uh, it took place in San Francisco. Uh, that was kind of eerie. It had some kind of goofy effects, but it was fairly uh, scary. And the whole thing was is that, uh, sort of similar to the thing, people are transforming into aliens uh, if they fall asleep. Like, if they fall asleep then their bodies are sort of, uh, what's the right word, metamorphosized, kind of like a caterpillar. Yeah, and then they then, then they turn into the alien, and then the aliens walk among you, and you don't know who they are. So it has that kind of paranoid feeling that the thing has. But the thing is such a pressure cooker, which is why this movie is so great. And I don't know where we wanted to go from here. I think we maybe talked about the biological end of the film enough, but uh, if there's well, anything more you want to cover there. Let's talk about the thing itself. I had a thought came to me, and it's interesting that you uh, mentioned z- xenomorphs earlier. About Oh, the by the way, starting for the uninitiated, xenomorph is our catch-all for uh, the alien monster from the, the Giger alien monster from the uh, alien films. I think that's its formal name within that 
mythos. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, now I guess I always thought of this being as the passenger or one of the passengers of the spacecraft that's shown in this movie. I'm not terribly happy with the fact that they show the spacecraft, especially at the beginning. Oh, you don't like that? In the middle. I don't know. It just seems like a, uh, it seems like almost too much. But in the way when I was watching it this time, you know, I wonder, could this basically, this be uh, some sort of weaponized biologics, the thing, in the sense that it was, uh, it basically was wreaking havoc on the spaceship and that's why it's crashed. Okay. That we're sort of giving, we're getting basically like a Earth has picked up one of those little bomblets that those third world children pick up and have their hands blown off. There's just a little bit of one of their weapons has landed on the planet, and it just happens to wreak havoc in in a craft. Well, okay. So so there's the prequel, which goes about explaining all of the history prior that sets up the John. It doesn't explain. It doesn't explain the alien necessarily. Well, I know they go into the alien ship, and there's that weird-looking, like Rubik's cube Tetris thing. That's, yeah, it's, I, I don't, I don't I, see I don't what know. can be inferred from anything in that movie. In fact, I was, that's one of the reasons I was a little disappointed in the film. Not necessarily, I was probably more disappointed by other things, but it doesn't really tell you any more about the thing than you already know from watching the original of the thing. I mean, right. Uh, the 81 well okay so there's a few there's a few hints that you get watching the film of how the aliens arriving and it's of course arriving in a spaceship because it's an alien and so it has to uh, how it's a passenger on there is not really explained but there is something that at least when i was a kid or it seems somewhat telling is that intro sequence where you get sort of this wobbling saucer and the wobbling saucer kind of looks like it's like about to crash or it looks fucked up or something's not right inside that spaceship right i mean it's it's going I'm assuming in for... why else would you just bury it land in the middle of a glacier and then with no real plans end up getting frozen there for a hundred thousand years yeah really if it's a plan it's one hell of a long scene well okay so like you assume it's a crash landing right you kind of assume that's that's how how it's supposed to be presented see you assume there's some host and then you get some critter that has crawled out of the wreckage uh maybe it's an imitation of whatever the native alien was you never actually see it which is kind of odd uh, no, you don't. You don't see it. I mean, that's part of the great suspense in this movie. You, you you have something, but it has no shape necessarily, other than it's made up of vaguely organic matter. Yeah, yeah. It's it's at a cellular level. Your 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 enemy is at sort of a, a cellular level. But the thing that I don't understand is the thing. Uh, is it have any kind of intelligence? Because you get this feeling that there's this sort of hive intelligence or this emergent intelligence that comes out of the creature as it assimilates uh, crew members. It's somehow able to communicate amongst its parts, uh, whether it's a reconstituted dog or a reconstituted person, uh, to continue the ruse to the point of complete assimilation, right? Well, I mean... If it is made imitations, and I guess you could argue about exactly what it means 
in this movie to make an I- imitation because it doesn't really show you the process. I mean, does it consume the previous being and then make a, a de novo uh, imitation copy or does it like sort of uh, permeate an existing being and sort of reform it from within? The thing I'm saying is it acts these imitations for whatever the, whatever they are actually behave as if that person would normally behave. And right. if the thing deems it necessary, it will let its imitation behave as if it wasn't an imitation. So it must have a it must be able to absorb a complete understanding of that person it's imitating, social structure, all the knowledge, uh language usage, body language. So I don't I mean, it'd be tough to say, how could a non-intelligence do that? Well, there's some paradox. Of course, I probably read it on Cracked Online or something about the, you know, some great paradox. And it was an old Greek paradox. Like if you take a ship and over its lifetime, you replace every component on that ship. Is it the same ship? Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a metaphor. It's not really... You know, obviously, the of course, it's a different ship because none of the original parts exist. Uh, but I always have that opinion about human beings because human beings, obviously, there's some original cellular, cellular material that we still retain since some, yeah. we, we were born. Uh, but, you know, cells die. They're reformed. Uh, like how much of us is actually original from the point at which we were born and uh, does it even matter you know what well, i mean well probably not much and probably it doesn't matter much so if you have an alien that's basically doing the same thing after this crazy hemorrhagic episode uh where it's just basically kind of xeroxing itself and destroying the original copy that's kind of what i was thinking it does at least from the uh very crude computer-generated analysis that that uh, Blair does. Well, the explanation the of the ripped clothes. So the movie sort of says that it absorbs and then reforms the copy. Yeah. So obviously it's not smart enough to be a mimic. It must use the original uh, to, to, to fool, uh, I guess, the tribe or whatever. No, I don't, I, don't see, I don't see where you're coming from there. I mean, I was just saying that the... The movie states that it rips through the clothes. Maybe that's just its entry point, is what you're saying. Well, when you say it rips through I, the clothes, it's like a it's like a lycanthropy, where you just reform yourself, right? I mean, is well, that kind I of mean, the deal? Just, a, just how about this? How about if you were able to eat a mouse, and uh, somehow your digestive tract could completely map all of its organs and its function and its neuronal state, and then you were able to copy. A little mouse out of the side of your chest that would pop off and would be an exact copy of that mouse. You see what I mean? Those yeah, are two no, different things. Yeah, yeah. So I, the movie's not clear whether or not it, it completely absorbs, deconstructs, and then mimics it. The, I have I have a feeling it's more of a deconstruction and reconstruction of a copy. Well, the mo- okay, assuming that it, it retains the, I guess, original motivations and character of, of the... But it copies it completely. I mean, if you were to make a complete copy of a human being, what the, what difference would it be? If you had a well, there's copying a huge machine that would copy you in your exact state you're in, there would simply be two you. There'd be no difference between the two of them. And there's a huge uh, discrepancy, though, because you have 
the Enigma Blair, who is really your biggest insight into the alien motivation. Uh, because Blair has this sort of survival mode there at the beginning, right? Where, where he understands what the the thing is, understands what must be done to halt its advance on human civilization, uh, goes through with his plan to stop that advance by destroying all means of communication and transportation out of the site. And then they lock him up, and then something really weird happens to Blair that you don't see uh, in in the film. He turns into one of the things at some point, and then he does all kinds of trippy shit. Like, he builds his own fucking spaceship well, in some, some sort hollowed of out... Well, obviously, Blair wouldn't have done that as a survivor. No, he, he was doing he was doing that through like a bunch of ice. Yeah, right. Well, the thing about the Blair, and it's, I don't know if you're complete with your thought about Blair, but it's not clear when Blair is assimilated. No, he it's could, not. It's a big mystery. A, he, his his behavior from very early in the film could be that of the motive. He could have been motivated by being a copy of the thing and the thing's own ends to destroy the radio equipment. And the vehicles. Oh, to freeze to death so somebody would eventually yeah. find it? Well, maybe he was just thinking that uh, it, he'd rather meet society sort of fresh for the first time instead of he'd like to dispose of these panicked beings and then go to society uh, under a, a fresh guise now that the thing has some understanding of the situation. Um, rather than... So he he, he wants to go get out of there on his own terms he doesn't necessarily want more no. of these beings being called in to rain f- fire upon it so i think it ha- i think personally my my take on blair is that he's assimilated very early and destroys the radio equipment and the uh and the vehicles as a larger plan to isolate these beings so he can pick them off and at the same time make his own vehicle so he can get away at the end. Well, but why is he studying him, his own whatever he is? You know, he. Well, he, well what would what he he? I he writes his what, own crude, uh, cobol or basic <laughs> scientific uh, code to calculate uh, population infect infectious rates and uh, survivability and how long it will take until the entire planet is consumed. Uh, he has all kinds of like these computerized models of the cells of the thing taking over human cells. Well, you have uh, to remember that after that incident, uh, uh, just shortly after that, Fuchs comes to McCready and says, Hey, there's some Blair. He's been locked up in his room for hours. Okay. So he could have been absorbed in between those two moments. Yeah. But see, I, I don't I see mean, why not. I mean, this thing, he blocked himself in his room for a few hours, and then all of a sudden he goes mad and starts destroying radio equipment? Well, I guess we can kind of nitpick that. Well, I'm not uh, sure if that's nitpicking. I mean, well, no, I, isn't it, we're trying to figure out what, why, what motivates Blair's actions at different points in this film. I mean, at some point he's assimilated. Well, the, uh, I was reading this the novella synopsis, and Blair takes the same role as he does in the film. Uh, in the synopsis I read, he somehow is able, he turns into, he's sequestered and he turns into a, 
a thing. And he's somehow able to like sneak under the door. Like he kind of turns to slime and he'll sneak out under the door and then reform kind of like a, a gooier version of Dracula. You know, he can kinda yeah. <laughs> just turn into a goo and, and really, slink around the site. And, a slime mold. They're yeah. a great multicellular organism. And do what he wants. And he's building this in the novella, I guess it's described as some sort of anti gravity uh, ship, which is hinted at here. And I don't know if Carpenter was just doing these homages to the original Campbell story, uh, trying to include as much of the weirdness and, and coolness that is sci fi into the into the film to, to to give it its proper due but whatever is done it it definitely frays uh, the whole blair uh, sequence or uh yeah certainly it, we could argue about the sequence he could have been changed after he was locked in the tool shed absolutely yeah it's certainly it, a possibility i don't think the movie's clear on that matter i do like how it shows that the thing is a very advanced organism it's not just an angry monster Right. It, uh, it's it's moves, though they may be done in desperation at times, and you get that feeling that um, it has it, it's able to plan and obviously has enough know how to engineer some sort of ad hoc vehicle. Well, it, it, it's, I mean, it adds a dimensionality of fear. You're like, Jesus, you know, it was bad enough. I was dealing with a monster. Now I'm dealing with a monster that, you know, can engineer his own aircraft out of spare parts off a fucking tiny base in Antarctica. Right. I mean, well, that's yeah. a whole other level of, oh, shit, we're fucked. Well, and the thing is, is, is like I was talking about earlier, where you get these echoes of alien beings that have been uh, assimilated a long time ago, like some weird spider monster, you know, all these kind of echoes of, of strange alien uh, creatures that sort of explode when it's it's when it's absorbing things. I mean, are uh, you getting that idea from some other place or just from the movie? From the movie, because you see like crazy like flowers emerge out of the monster. You know, like the, I mean, you see things that remind me a lot of organisms from the Earth. Like you see these little like tendrils with these little like sort of weird um, like appendages at the end that look like. Uh, uh, like s- certain types of squid. Yeah, uh, yeah. Prehensile appendages, and you see, you know, sort of insectoid. Uh, well, um, the spider like appendages armed, that you yeah, see. Yeah, and uh, eyes and on you, stalks. Uh, yeah, I mean, nothing seems, other than it's sort of all pink and gross, it doesn't seem too far out. You know what I mean? No, I know what you mean. It seems I, like, what, I mean, the artist took from things that are around him. There's nothing that, well, about those shapes that really seems, I mean, other than the fact that it's they're all together in this big horror. No, well, Does what? There, any element of that really seem spacey to you? Well, no, no, no. What I, what I was saying was that, that yeah, I, I understand. Yeah, it's all kind of terrestrial, terrestrial uh, manufacture. There's nothing there that's completely surreal uh, i mean i like the insight and i certainly believe it in my own structure of, of what the thing is well i was head. just thinking that there's intelligences that the thing possesses that it can uh i guess deploy in blair's case to go ahead and build itself something of an advanced technology certainly it, it, can, it, make, may, it can make large claws and jaws but it can also has the ability to make complex 
uh, solve complex problems. Right. And also, like, perhaps psychologically manipulate everybody to its own ends, which yeah, is also creepy. Well, I mean, I mean, just the act of completely imitating the behaviors of an individual. I mean, just imagine the huge amount of thought process that would be necessary to do that. Oh, yeah. So no, certainly the thing's learning about the social structure of these people over time. There was a great short story. I think you and I both read it. It was online. Oh, yeah. I got it right it was, in front of me. It was a Canadian uh, Peter writer. And I've read Peter Watts's novel, Starfish, which is really trippy. Uh, I don't know. I recommend people to read it. But he's uh, an, no, I'll have to check it out. He's an interesting science fiction writer. Uh, he's Canadian. He actually got roughed up at the border, uh, coming over the border. Uh, oh, God, I think I remember hurting, but I didn't put two and two together that I read this short story by yeah, him. Yeah, he got the shit beat out of him by oh, our... Uh, by reason? our uh, Because... Uh, Oh, he was being sort of haughty with them, I think. Right. Well, well and, that's what he gets for being haughty with those fucking assholes. I mean, you got guards. terrorists and you got science fiction you see, man, writers. You see a border, you get down your knee, you suck his dick as hard as you can. <laughs> that's the first thing I do when I cross the border. Hell, <laughs> do, if he wants, do, I'll put a thumb up his ass. <laughs> I'd like to use a little lube, though. For his protection, s- not mine. <laughs> How do you solicit, I wonder? Like some uh, mustached, just, uh, overweight you, No, you uh, look at him you go, is there anything else I can do? And when you say anything, you... You just slowly drop your eyes down to his crotch. Uh, do you lick your lick your upper lip a little bit? Uh, you bite your go, lower lip. Ooh, bite just your lower lip. Oh, that's hot. I may yeah. have to take. I'd take you up on yeah, that. I undo the top two buttons so you can see a little bit of my it's chest like, here. I was like, "All right, we're going to take you over to inspection stall number one, sir." Yeah, <laughs> let that let that let the well, evening roll. You don't have to roll. point me the way. I know all about that stall. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, no, you totally got uh, fucking. I think he got like some the shit beat out of him by our uh, ever vigilant uh, Canadian uh, border patrol or U.S. border patrol. You know, defending. Well, I read that. his posts about it, and he sounds like he was not being submissive, which you need to be in those cases. Well, you know, I have this issue with with my wife who views border. Authority. My wife. Is that how I said that? Did I say it with some kind of weird contempt? No. No, that was a Borat uh, thing. Oh, it's a Borat. My lie. Oh. <laughs> uh, where I, I, I have to always uh, give her my uptight uh, list of, of, of uh, appropriate behaviors crossing the border. Well, she doesn't yeah. have to do it. She's a woman. She can be a little haughty. They don't oh, but you the can't thing I try man. to... The thing I try to educate is, remember, uh, you just, you know it's bullshit, you know it's kind of a charade, uh, although less so than the TSA, I say the TSA is a complete charade, but remember, you play their game and you just kind of feed their little teeny ego just a little bit, and you just can make life so much easier, just get through that fucking border and you don't even have to think about it again. It's like easier than, you know... uh, it's 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 just something easy to brush off. You don't even feel dirty about it. You know, you just like. And so, how I'll, are those I'll lessons working out for you? Uh, they're working. I, I I have rules. Your your, those... your wife has been receptive to that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. No, I, well, you I, really I wear the pants. I see. I, I can. Gene, be... Gene would literally kick me in the nuts if I tried to tell her how to behave. Well, it's not like I ask a lot. Believe me, <laughs> I'm not asking. Uh, I don't have a huge litany of uh uh 
expectations going through the border. My expectation is shut your fucking mouth so nobody sticks their finger up my ass. <laughs> it, I don't want to say that that's the crux of it, but it comes, you know, it comes close to that. I'm just like, uh, I'll, I'll just talk to him. Remember to take your sunglasses off so they don't ask you to remove your sunglasses, and uh, we'll get through this in, in due fashion. It'll be fine. I wear sunglasses with little marijuana leaves on them, some tea glasses. That always works real well. <sighs> anyway, so Peter Peter Watts, not of our uh, of our opinion, or at least not of my opinion, and decided to, uh, you know, I guess uh, you well, you wanted an experience, and it sounded like he got one. And he's Canadian too, right? And he's Canadian. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's going to be so, even worse. So he wrote a short story back to original thing, which uh, pun intended, I guess, which was. A short story. It was a long one, as I recall. Yeah, it's where, a, I mean, it's I mean, it's it's a longish short story, but it's no novella. Where he takes the perspective of the thing and the thing, right? And have yeah. you read it recently to give it a I little bit more? It today. Oh well, Mark. What? Oh, so, what was your take on Peter Watts' interpretation of the thing? Well, I mean, as you would guess, he has to make some stark conclusions from the film on who is uh who is assimilated and uh who is not at any given point in time so you can argue about that if you read the the carefully and you may argue some of his points on right. on what okay. uh, what is presented by the film but beyond that he, he takes a really interesting uh, uh stab at uh, uh trying to understand the motivations of the thing and i think he does a great job um his whole idea is the thing comes from the universe, a universe where um, of sort of thinking flesh, where all all flesh is sort of uh, imbued with the ability to understand and also to uh, more change its structure and uh, and it's uh, it basically is able to adapt at will depending on whatever the situation is and beyond that it's able to do something it's able to commune as a whole so basically all flesh in the universe communicates with each other in a way that they're all one even if they're separated they can be so, separated in the case of this thing it's separated from sort of a a universal mass of, of thought so but it's when like they come back they they recommune and reconnect so it's like the borg kind of but maybe on a more biological level i think in, in a more believable level i mean it, in the way this it's sort of a, a beautiful thing the thing's a, a, a gorgeous i mean we would only be so lucky to live in such a universe well, that, it has a consciousness, obviously, right? It's not there's just a, a... There's a universal consciousness it has. Yeah. It's not just like what you get a little bit in the movie, which is sort of this virus that will do anything to stay alive. I mean, that's kind of the I impression really like you the get. I don't like the term virus. I'll have to make okay. a difference. But uh, what would of, you like to... Uh, the sort of uh, scared organism. Okay. The sort of desperate organism that is... I mean, shit, things are blowing flamethrowers at it. Yeah, But, man. you know, the way is... The, the the short story actually addresses that it's that this this organism is was terribly damaged by the uh the crash and basically it's lost most of its mass and in in a, in a sense because its mass is thinking it loses most of its uh it loses the vast majority of its cognition ability and memories there's so basically a- it, it it knows it's cut off and has an intelligence that's maybe a bit greater than of a of a human and uh, it has it has some understanding, but it doesn't have the whole picture, and it knows it's been really heavily debilitated. There's it's a, sort of running scared. 
because it whenever it, it keeps getting bit by bit more of its mass being taken away from it while it fights McCready and the men. There's a, a I'd say it's an all right sci-fi novel, although I, I remember sci-fi... I, sh- I presented it to you at first and you didn't like it that much. What's that? What are you talking about? I, I present when I first read this, I sent it to you and you read it. Did I did I have a bad opinion about it? You, you didn't like it that much, and I was I was a little surprised because I thought I thought it was really inventive and insightful. Uh, well, I take it back. I, I, I in retrospect, I think it was uh, a good insight or a well thought out insight. I, after reading Peter Watts' later stuff, I'll have to reread it again. I'm going to uh, read an excerpt from it. Okay, here. let's do it. I mean, right. the funny thing about this short story is it takes place during the events what's of the, the film. What's the short story called? So It's called The can, Things. The Things. It's what plural. Thing calls the humans. Oh, okay. Perfect. Um, All right, read something. And for, the, for most of the story, it's just trying to understand what these fucking things are doing. It can't figure out, like, as soon as it comes back to life, the first thing it, it, first thing it tries to do is reach out and commune with the other organisms around it, basically making one flesh out of two. And it finds this unthinking sort of dead flesh that doesn't commune back with it. And it doesn't understand what's going on. And, of course, the things around it, which just doesn't understand their motivation, the humans see these events, and they take it that it's consuming, which I guess it really is doing. Um, And it's sort of, the thing is aghast that it's being attacked at every turn. And eventually it starts to play sort of a coy game where it decides it's going to imitate these humans. It thought it's going to try to low, lie low as best it can and try to understand the situation because it fucking doesn't understand why there's these non-thinking masses of flesh around it that want to destroy it. And it's finally, as it slowly uh, uh, absorbs, and, and the absorption process is not quick in the short story, he sees it as more of a slow sell-by-sell well, um, it's absorption it, process where uh, it takes it takes days to fully absorb uh, one of the humans it infects. Well, you and, could say like it's a time relativity thing, right? I mean, it's not easy enough. Like, I have the, no idea what you mean, time relativity. Well, time time for the organism travels or is a lot slower, or quicker than our you, time. You don't you frame. don't see the organism uh, experience time at any great different rate of change than we experience it, which makes me think that at its weakened form, it has the intelligence of roughly a man. Oh, what I was going to say quickly is that there's a novel called, uh, shit, I'm slowing it down. Uh, crap. Uh, something fire in the deep. I think it's called by, and I can't see the novel right now to give the author out, but it's a fire upon the deep. Uh, I, I apologize. And it has, like there's these creatures, these aliens that they're like dogs and to form a full individual, like a thinking individual, they have to create these groups of five. And then as this group of five, the individual dogs or dog like creatures, you're not actually told they're dogs, uh, die out. Then the creature itself becomes dumber. And if you separate one completely, then it's just basically a dog. So it kind of has that sort of hive mind. Well, it's exactly what the thing says. It talks about its other pieces of flesh. As it separates, it loses contact with its other, its other bits of itself. And when they become too small, it takes, it discusses its parts as acting on an instinctual level to escape fire. Same kind of idea then. Yeah. And it basically. sort of laments its inability to control these bits of flesh because they become unthinking. But here he's, as he's slowly absorbing humans, he's trying to figure out 
where their thought processes come from because it just sees this dumb flesh and it's sort of it can't quite figure out what motivates them what controls them you know uh why do they behave the way they do and it finally looks at an organ it had dismissed earlier the brain and it comes to a realization of what's happening and i'll uh, i'll read this excerpt right here and this is all the voice of the thing i realized something else too the eyes the ears of my dead skin that had fed into this thing before copper pulled it free he's talking about a uh it's it's watching as one of the assimilated humans staying quiet watching an autopsy and he's talking about it the autopsy pulling a brain out of a corpse oh he says the a massive bundle of fibers ran along the skin's longitudinal axis right up to the middle right up the middle of the endoskeleton directly into the dark sticky cavity where the growth had rested that misshapen structure had been wired into the whole skin like some sort of somatocognitive interface, but vastly more massive. It was almost as if, no, that was how it worked. That was how these empty skins moved of their own volition, why I found no other networks to integrate. There it was, not distributed throughout the body, but balled up into itself, dark and dense and insisted. It had found, I had found the ghost in these machines. I felt sick. I shared my flesh with thinking cancer. Yeah, you know, I hear something like that, and I just think about what a shitty writer I am. <laughs> oh, really? I, I just oh, that's like just that. great it's, stuff. That's yeah, just I, awesome. I thought, I thought it was really stuff. inventive to sort of. Yeah. I mean, he really took you into the 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 confusion of a being a real alien, right? That right, can't yeah, even yeah. understand how these things are motivated. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was really interesting. Yeah, no. Peter Watts, uh, Starfish is a is a really good novel. It's very psychological. Uh, he he kind of taps the id. That's kind of his his uh, I guess ace and all as far as his writing goes. Uh, but uh, yeah, read his stuff. Uh, I can't recommend him highly enough. So I'll have to check him out. I always like that, but I haven't read anything else of his since then. Uh, we've talked, I think, about the alien for going on fifty minutes here. We haven't really talked about the film, about uh, this, the about all the ladies. Well, let's talk about all the ooh, female, all the ladies. Well, there is the lady uh, with the voice of the chess machine that uh, you get there. Where uh, cheat the cheating bitch, the cheating bitch, where uh, McCready dumps his fucking whiskey and ice, and <laughs> which seems That's like great. the only female in this movie is a computer, <laughs> and, and it gets called a cheating bitch. bitch. That's right. Amazing. And gets a drink thrown in its face. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I guess I, I didn't even realize that. But yeah, no, McCready throws a drink in the... Let's uh, just say he might have some baggage when it comes to the women folk. You think? that's 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 That might be why he's a helicopter pilot, alcoholic... A alcoholic helicopter pilot in Antarctica for what seems to be like a full-time gig. <laughs> I mean, I just love these characters. They're all called by either nicknames or last names. They got McCready. You got uh, Cop. Is it Copper? Or copper. Two? It's Copper. Childs. Norris, Windows, Blair, Clark, Childs, Fuchs. Yeah. Gary, which I guess is his last name, Bennings, Knowles, and Paul. Right. Right. Yeah. a bunch of guys. Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, well, Windows, you assume that might be his nickname. You don't know if that's actually his last name or not. So. Yeah, I think he may be because of those. He, he could, his name could be Windows. By the we'll way, Windows, uh, a member of the Warriors in a former life. I don't know if you realize that. But, Was there a Windows in the Warriors? No, no. The guy oh, that, who played Windows. That. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I really like his performance. He's one of the more interesting characters. It's too bad he gets offed in such a terrible way. Yeah, I know. He just kind of turns into this uh, 
like weird. I mean, he's still alive, but he's still like I he's sort know. of being absorbed. Yeah, yeah, it's really fucked up. But yeah, so uh, <laughs> you get the chess woman, and then you get, uh, I guess, a woman contestant on what is it? The Price is Right or uh, Let's Make a Deal or one of those. Uh, oh, that's right. They're watching some old recorded television programs. Yeah, and I was thinking, like, to be in Antarctica in that period of time because now they have internet connections down there and uh you know you get a little bit more of communication in the outside world i knew a guy who worked down there in the late 90s yeah he was down there for a winter at the south pole which is pretty psychologically weird uh, I, they do a psych work up on you to work the winter down in antarctica i forget who does the logistics i think it's raytheon has a has a logistics operation that supplies personnel to all those uh, research sites down there and uh yeah he 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 said it's kind of a weird place to work and he was working the telescope at the south pole and uh he said that due to the satellite constellations you could get an internet connection so he could get kind of emails out and that kind of thing but it was only at certain times a day so you would kind of dip down below the celestial horizon and you wouldn't be able to pick up a satellite or something like that. So hmm. uh, it's better now. But <laughs> here you have, like, they can't even get anybody on, like, HF Longwave, you know, yeah, when those is make, there. Does that make any sense? It seems like you would know that. They, they, can't, they can't get their a shortwave radio to send a signal out? You can does, absolutely does... get a shortwave radio. That means their equipment's fucked up. They're, it has can... to be. Oh, yeah, because I remember reading uh, Thor Heyerdahl's uh, Tiki, and they're out on a balsa wood raft, and they inflate a balloon with a wire on it to do HF longwave. And they were able to actually communicate with a doctor in Los Angeles from South Pacific. So you can go over the horizon. You can go extremely long distances. Uh, and on Antarctica, you have other support stations. So that was kind of... A little ridiculous, but it kind of added to the atmosphere. I mean, movie, it's you know? nice, I guess. Yeah. But and the problem is, they did the same fucking thing with the, with the prequel. Oh, really? And I was like going. I mean, I guess maybe if, maybe some periods of like high solar activities, maybe you couldn't get those those shortwave signals out. But those things well, travel all the way around the world. Yeah, the thing is, though, is that you could have worked with the whole winter thing because winter, you can't get. You can't really land aircraft, at least at the South Pole. It's too cold. There's just no way to do it. And so, uh, you know, regardless, you could say you'd have communication, but maybe that just kind of uh, – you needed somewhere modern that had no link to the outside world, and that kind of added to the psychological atmosphere. So I kind of, you know, I sort of shrugged it off a little bit. Yeah, you sort of have to. It's, yeah. it's, it's a limitation that's sort of absurd. Right, exactly. So, um, yeah, and there's some other minor things that I was kind of nitpicking about uh, <laughs> the reality of their situation. Uh, but I guess it is true, at least from this guy, Chris. I forget his last name. It's probably for the better. 
because because I think his wife his wife left him for another woman. But anyway, we're talking about the guy who served in Antarctica. Yeah, the guy that I knew that worked down there, and uh, although tax free, worked down there tax free. There's uh, you know, I think no I think it'd be fun. I would go crazy and kill everybody on the base I was with. I don't think you'd be allowed to be there, my friend. <laughs> but I think it would be fun. I'd still like to do it, even though nobody in their right mind would ever hire. I've me always wanted job. to go down there and work. Uh, what do they call it? Austral summer, which is in the south, the southern hemisphere summer months where you're you know basically working down there and everybody's down there because you can get in and out fairly easily it's sunny it's sunny or at least it's light you know all year all day all day long so that's when a a majority of the science goes on down in antarctica it's like a three-month period where they get people in yeah and so but you know when it turns, you still have to support facilities, basically make sure that, you know, they're, they're staying heated and things don't go into disrepair. And plus, you can do a limited amount of science and and all that kind of well, stuff. Plus, you that, probably have to upkeep the bases. You can't let them go dark. Yeah, exactly. You know, But the thing is that the, the best case is they could maybe drop a load. They could never land a well, plane. Well, they had places. some woman at the South Pole who self-diagnosed herself with breast cancer. And they had to do uh, midwinter, which is hardly ever done. Uh, but they did a low altitude uh, pallet drop at the South Pole. They couldn't land, but they would do. A, they did a low altitude, so they opened the back of the C one thirty and dumped out like a parachute pallet of scientific or not scientific, but uh, I think there was some like cancer drugs and some equipment there that would allow her to be treated until they could evacuate her in the spring or something like that so and then uh, there's that that great true story about the the russian doctor who was down there and removed his own uh uh like did some sort of intestinal surgery on himself fucking russians man they're so (laughs) hardcore they got us beat they can do fucking anything i swear to god it takes balls (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's certainly plenty of balls over there in Russia. So, uh, but the whole thing, this movie got criticized because there was no women in in the entire cast. Which, I mean, did they have many women in these? I mean, how many outposts other than McMurdo do they have down there in Antarctica? How many? How many? How many year-round camps exist? Well, there's McMurdo, and then there's the South Pole, which are U.S. installations, and I'm sure there's satellites around there. Uh, then there's all other countries that have, uh, y- you know, like I think Russia and um, it's sort of an international zone. So anybody can basically sign up to the treaty and go ahead and put a scientific installation down there. So mm-hmm. there's a ton of different countries with stuff going on down there. All right. So, you know, but uh, I don't know what we were talking about. Oh, women. Yeah, there, there's 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 pretty huge. I'd say it's probably pretty close to fifty fifty women working down there. You know, it's science. Okay. So it's yeah, like it's, guys thing. Well, yeah, you can kind of you get that feeling in this movie because you're talking about like a very small installation, right? Oh, is this supposed to be a pretty small camp? It seemed pretty big. I mean, how big is McMurdo? I mean, what's their winter staff? It can't be that many. Oh, McMurdo's people. huge because it's a big logistical base. But there's not a hundred people there in the middle of winter. Oh, there's probably more than that. In the and winter? Oh yeah, it's it's big. So really, oh shit! I didn't so, realize that. Anyway, but you have just this, you know, you just have men in the movie, and I think that's why 
Carpenter got beat up from the critics. But I think it needs to work that way because you need a certain male interplay to really, I guess, shed any of the baggage that might come along with uh, more gender complexity. Is that being sexist saying that? I, I just... Uh, I think it might be. I'm going to have to check. Let me <laughs> pop over and ask your a question to everybody at Jezebel. Do you have your See what they have to say. <laughs> Pretty sure. I mean, the thing is, it probably could be a similar movie with some females in it. Well, the the prequel you saw the prequel recently. I don't remember much about it, and it had sort of really the like same it. thing. It didn't really work very well, especially the character they had that played. Well, the sequel had all sorts of. I she mean, the prequel hot, had all though. sorts of problems. She was hot. That chick, I forget her name, but she's hot. Yeah, I mean, she was a good looking, brown haired, scientific girl. I mean, there's nothing wrong. That with actress, her. I got to find that actress. She was, but she was... I mean, they tried to put her into the McCready role, basically, and it just didn't seem to work. I don't know if that's well, a sexist thing. Is that uh, McCready is such a? But she's a scientist, and McCready's a, like a soldier. Yeah, McCready's like, he's like escaping demons down there, and she's not. She's going down there for the fine of the century. Yeah, yeah. So it I, doesn't I, really make as much sense. She's not an alcoholic. She doesn't. She's not bitterly hard like McCready is. Yet they try to put her into that role. It just doesn't work. Well, McCready, I think without Kurt Russell in this movie, I think you would have had uh, a lesser film. And Well, you well, can have that same person who played Captain Janeway on Voyager. You could have like an older woman who was maybe uh, just, divorced. You know, I think that would work. But uh, you can have a, a hot, young, 29-year-old PhD play McCready. Well, there's just something about McCready, though. And I think it gets at this sort of... It, it, like men can automatically re- relate to the Kurt Russell performance because, you know, it's just like you're a little tired, you're a little worn out, you didn't sign up for this. Um, you're getting too old for this shit. You're getting too old for this shit. But there's like, there's this one look that Kurt Russell gives and it's uh, <laughs> something about, I think it's uh, Copper talking about the weather. Oh, it's real light, you know, when we... <laughs> Just get above and it'll be fine. You know, talking about going up. To go oh, he's trying to convince him for that first trip. Yeah, yeah, and and like Kurt Russell has a couple of these looks, which are amazing because he's like wearing those glacier glasses. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like a pause, like you're fucking crazy. You know, well, it's like, more like, look, you don't have to convince me. Just he'd rather just be told to do it than right. glad handed to do it. It's right, like, you want me to go or not? Yeah, don't exactly. Try to, don't try to convince me to go. Tell me to go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Don't be a pussy is basically what he's telling uh he's telling uh Gary. Well, I think I like the the McCready character because he's acting how I would like to think I would act in the film. And when I say that, it's it's throwing my anxiety to the side <laughs> and oh, really? going No, I I'd, I'd I'd act like uh Windows. <laughs> I I try to find some guns and freak to sh- my sh- lose my shit. Right, you'd be there bashing the uh what was he he's breaking into the oh the 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 shotgun uh cabinet right yeah yeah, yeah. and then he was like get the fuck away from me everybody i think yeah. there were rifles but... right right yeah that's i don't know that's that's why i like this movie so much is because mccready is the uh, uh he's co- almost a mythical 
type of character that yeah, he's I would a great like to man. think that's how I would act. You know, I'd like to think that I would be recording a log of my own demise, which Look, I always find is a heroic effort, by the way. Mm. When I hear about people who are on doomed expeditions who take the time to record more or less their last moments for – I don't think I would have it in me. I don't think I would have the song. I'd just be trying to uh, uh, get one more masturbation session <laughs> <laughs> <You'd be> like, <laughs> I think I squeeze one more off before the cold takes me. I think that's how the thing would get you, man. It'd find that closet, and that's how it would take you. It'd be, you'd be alone, you know. I so. think. Oh God, I think I'd go check. Uh, I'm pretty sure that um, Windows had some spank mags. I think he was checking it out on the radio one time. When I he think. Fell asleep. Yeah. There was like there was. I like thought a, it was just uh, like some mag. like uh, photography. Yeah, uh, photography with the cords right. around it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I I like to think that I could I would enjoy a stint uh, working remotely in Antarctica. That it would be sort of a a cleansing, uh, you know, sort of pure experience where you're ejected from society and uh, all you have is yourself. But I don't think that's the way it works. And it doesn't. But this is a male fantasy. I think that's why it is. This, this is a movie that's really made for guys, and as much as people might. I don't know. Maybe people don't like to think that guys and women are different on some fundamental levels, but I think they are. And McCready's a male fantasy. It's not a female it, fantasy. It's sort of, yeah, it's like the eat, pray, love equivalent. <laughs> now, look, I'm not saying that some women would want to be like uh, McCready, but I think generally, in generalities, it's more of a male fantasy than well, a female fantasy. you know, John, Jack Kerouac had sort of this fantasy, this solitude fantasy, although McCready's not completely solitary. He does have a shack, right, where he can go Why would drunk. you winter in like a little shack? <laughs> we're going like, to burn enough kerosene to heat that little thin-walled shack. All seems like a terrible uh, use of energy, right? <laughs> To have, and it's why up are above. all the walls there paper thin? Are they like that down there? Just because you don't, uh, really don't know. spend too much money shipping materials in? It seems like all those walls would be like a foot thick, just so you wouldn't lose much heat. Maybe on the outside, but maybe in the inside, they're just sort of like cubicle partitions. You know, well, that makes sense. Yeah, but yeah, why you would have on uh, raised up platform like this isolated hut that like shares no common heating system with the main base, and that's where you're going to spend your time. <laughs> Anyway, Kerouac had this sort of solitary fantasy where uh, he went up to, I think it's the uh, North Cascades National Park, just right up the road here, and spent a summer on Firewatch. And he was really into, uh, you know, I guess Buddhism. Maybe that was his deal. Uh, sort of a lot of Eastern philosophy. And he wanted to do that sort of alone in the desert, you know, that sort of Jesus moment that point where you uh, have some kind of spiritual clarity and complete isolation yeah, and it, depletion of your electrolytes well maybe in jesus's case but i'm assuming that jack was fairly well stocked with you know the amenities up there and uh, i want to say it's devil's mountain fuck oh damnation peak that's it it's up mm, off, that's off of ross lake and uh instead you know what happened it's got horribly fucking depressed <laughs> <laughs> and couldn't get out of that place quick enough. You know? yeah. <laughs> Just and I feel that's the way it would be with me. I, I would be down there and I'd be like, I really need to get back to 
civilization like the 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 race is leaving me behind i think i would have this this horrible moment of regret that wouldn't leave me for nine months and uh i couldn't wait to get back i, I think that's the way it would play out yeah, i think I could, i'd like to think differently i think i'd only want to take two months away two months would be a good time uh any longer than that and i'd be like uh I don't think I can read anymore, you know, because that would be my ideal, right? I could, like, you know, read all I needed to read. Uh, but then I learned some sort of logistical facts about working in Antarctica. You know, they keep interior temperatures only at about 55 degrees. Well, that, you, makes, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I guess the heat, the heat quotient is Wear a sweater, just, asshole. But fuck, man, you know what your fingers would feel like? Because you can't type on a keyboard. You can't read a book. Well, wear some you, fingerless gloves. Oh, that's that would be just I couldn't do it. It's not that bad. We keep we keep this house, the house I live in, pretty cold. At least the bedrooms. Really? Yeah, we don't really heat them in the winter. Oh, they get enough heat from the center. We have a fireplace that heats the central room, so we get that up to seventy. But then when you go to bed, it's like it's like fifty-five or so in the bedroom. Really? You You just get under a big thick sheet. Well, we keep our house this winter around seventy because uh, you have a more modern house with full central, right? Yeah, we have forced air and all that good stuff. Yeah. So anyway, so all right. So we're getting on the past the hour. So I think. Well, it's I, time. I got one question. Oh, yeah, one more thing. Okay. That I want to answer before we go. All right. To see Ebert's glowing review. Um, has has it's the main question that remains in my mind after finishing watching this movie. It's about McCready's solution or something. It's what he decides to do in the end. This doesn't really quite make sense to me. Why does he decide the best solution is to burn the place down? I mean, I I just don't see where burning the motherfucker down gets him any closer to anything but death. Well, okay, so there's one. uh, This brings up something else that I wanted to to get at, and I want to cover it briefly here. But, okay, so in the dog pen, there's two creatures, right? There's one they burn up, and there's one that everybody sees tear a hole in the roof and crawl somewhere into the crawl space of the uh, station, right? Um, I don't know if it's clear about that. I think it's, it's, Come it's on. trying to pull itself out, but they get in there to burn it. No, no. It I think everybody's seeing it pull its shit up into the crawl space of the station. I don't see that. Right. That seems pretty obvious. I, I, I haven't seen that, but okay. So if that was the case. Okay. So they... I'm not. I always wondered why they didn't spend the majority of the movie looking for this gigantic, weird fucking organism crawling around the subspace of the station because it makes its cameo at the end. You know, what makes its cameo at the end? The gigantic amalgamated fucking thing beast. Well, that that, that's that's made mostly from the flesh of uh, Blair and the uh, absorption of uh, of. Knowles and Gary. Or, well, yeah, or but whatever. the thing is, you lose track of how many bits of this thing there are, or its actions. I mean, you don't see what happens. Well, at the yeah, camps but over these this these few days, there's dog bits in that thing at the end. I mean, there's everything there, right? I mean, it's well, just there's things sort of... from other planets there. It doesn't I, mean I just... that it took some of those things with it. It just took the ability to make itself. In those so shapes. whether it's said or not, that's the thing McCready's trying to incinerate is that weird collection. Of, I don't see what's the material. difference between the Blair mimic and that collection. They're not they're one in the same thing. 
Yeah, I know. They're not so, two separate things. They may be separated in space, but they could rejoin at at any time. So to your to your, I guess to your question, uh, what does he think he's doing? I mean, what is he getting out of this? Why not well, just continue to hole up and fight? Why 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 burn down the whole place? Is he just hoping that the fire will happen to catch? This thing hiding out somewhere. I guess. I guess he like uh, he just wants. Like, why couldn't you just find the 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 blobby mass and just burn that? Is that what you're saying? Why couldn't you just try to hole up and try not to die? I mean, I just don't see where he. Well, he's, he's worried that sh- he would he would he would become weak and be assimilated. Is it just then, because he's scared of being assimilated? No, I, just don't I think see he's where doing it for the greater good. I think he's trying to to keep the thing from from getting out of the camp. Yeah, he's thinking that a deep freeze will be more likely to destroy it than no, than a long wait over winter. Well, but that's how they're killing these things throughout the movie. They burn them with yeah. the flamethrower that I'm not exactly sure you would need in an Antarctic research station, but they have one. And yes, so they have two. They have two. <laughs> so anyway, every time something's changing or halfway changed, they burn it. And then that seems to kind of do the trick, right? I guess he didn't have a lot of options. So that was basically about the only tool he had. He was either do nothing and hold up and slowly be picked apart or burn the place down and maybe catch it. Plus, it's awesome seeing him run through the halls throwing dynamite in every room. I yeah, mean, come on. The place explodes like crazy. Wouldn't that be awesome just to fucking throw dynamite in <laughs> Just have like a bundle of eight pieces of dynamite. <laughs> just, just tossing that shit left and right. I mean, it's cra- I mean, you used to just be able to buy dynamite. Just buy it. I like yeah, when my dad was building uh, the house back in like 68 and he was clearing the property. He That's how he got rid of all the stumps. Oh, he just he just, he just, he just went to a place where they just sold dynamite and he bought a box of dynamite. Jesus Christ. And then just like put pieces of dynamite so the stumps just bloomed to hell. That's that was standard amazing. procedure. Oh, and the other thing he did to get rid of all the bramble, he just made huge piles, pull, put old tires on it, and let it aflame. <laughs> That's how he got rid of all the brambles. Those were the days, huh? Those were the days. I miss them. So, are we ready for the review? Ebert reviewed this movie. On the 1st of January of 1982, hmm. uh, I gave it a thumbs down, uh, two and a half stars. That's a dog shit it. review, I'll tell you that much. And uh, so that's his highest thumbs down review, so it's not terrible. Yeah. It's two and a half out of four. Um, he said this, uh, the thing is a great uh, barf bag movie, but is it any good? He says uh, the movie has uh, a couple of big problems, the first being superficial uh, characterizations. Um, he says that um, Carpenter would rather see us jump six inches than get involved with the personalities of his characters. And that uh, he does just use a few reliable stereotypes for the primary person, primary purpose of getting jumped on from behind. So he's just, just ragging on the characters. Yeah. Um. So he doesn't like the characters. I, th- I think that's a shame. I guess I'm not really sure where well, he's coming I mean, the, from. The, the, I, I the, think it's probably just sort of... What I don't understand why he didn't like the characters in this movie. I mean, he didn't like McCready. He didn't like the sort of weak but honest uh, um, Gary or, or Wilf well, Brimley's Blair. I, I, and the whole... 
I guess I don't quite understand that. Do you have a specific point about that? The the thing is, is the thing. Uh, it's just punning all over the place. Uh, the movie is an ensemble cast. I mean, yeah, McCready is the main character. You can call him that. But it's an ensemble cast, right? So you don't have backstory time. You have thing characters plunged immediately into situations. Uh, so the context is such that it doesn't lend itself to this, you know, detailed character study. I that mean, what Hubert's does he pining want? For. I does don't know want, what he does wants. Does he want us to spend a half hour before this movie starts showing everybody's backstory? We yeah. see McCready get left by his wife with a Dear John letter <laughs> because he can't control his abusive drinking. We see uh, Gary get bumped upstairs out of the Air Force and pushed down to a, a crappy assignment in right. Antarctica, and he's disappointed his career is not where it could be. I mean, yeah, does that yeah. make the movie better? No, because... You just mentioned, you just got from the performances those backstories that are as authentic as any contrived backstory is needed. All you need to to, to, to know about the characters and the thing is, are their actions authentic and are their motivations genuine? I can't see any motivation here that is disingenuous. To- yeah, Ebert's, Ebert's just dead fucking wrong. He's just, that's why this is a dog shit review. I mean, like. So let's move on to his second problem. Okay. And that he says is plausibility. He says, why doesn't this movie use, just solve the problem of people getting taken by themselves, by the thing, by using a watertight buddy, buddy buddy system. He says that, um, he says, we continually are lose track of characters. And when they come back, we don't know if they're infected or not. It takes the fun out of the movie, he says. Hold I don't it. That's, know what the fuck he's talking that's about. That's the fucking fun of the movie. Nobody knows. <laughs> I mean, they, they don't just wander off by themselves like crazy. They try to buddy up the best they can, but they got a lot of shit on their, on their plate. And plus, a buddy system's not watertight. You don't know who's who. Well, and in the original Campbell uh, novella, I read that there was like a, a really elaborate four-person buddy system and, and et cetera and so on. Uh, well, that because, would have, I don't know. Maybe they could have made a bigger point of that. Maybe uh, they did were they really sloppy. need to? They didn't need to. The, the movie's quick But they, they were sloppy in the movie, but I just thought that was their characters. They were under a lot of stress. Right. It yeah, exactly. falls through the cracks. Yeah. Um, so basically, Ebert's two big problems are horse shit. <laughs> so let's go to the, the third paragraph of this long three-paragraph review. <laughs> the thing is basically then just a geek show, a gross-out movie. He says... Um, Carpenter spends all his time concentrating on special effects instead of the story. He says, yeah. this material has been done before and better, especially in the original The oh, Thing. That's such horse shit. That's a terrible movie. Fucking There's terrible no need movie. to see this version, he says. <laughs> Fucking asshole. God. And that's about it. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess um, I, I, it's, hard, it's hard to speak ill of a dead man, but you know, this he deserved getting jaw cancer. Well, the the thing is, there I go again. Uh, when I watched this movie, and I watched it at a very young age, probably too young, but uh, that the movie had that shock value. Obviously, never seen such such crazy, disgusting things on film. And uh, but I was like a ten year old, eleven year old kid, so it was right up my alley. I loved it. Uh, but the the thing is, is the movie. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> What's the thing, Matt? God damn oh, it's it! A, it's a extra extra solar uh, xenomorph that God wants to absorb damn it. people. I can't stop All right, it. We got it's to like the bottom of that. Some, 
burn synapses with that word. Uh, what is terrific is that there's an atmosphere with the thing that it's it's a holistic experience. Everything works. Uh, the Ennio Morricone soundtrack, which is brilliant. Uh, I have a copy of it that I listen to every Amazingly, now and then. that's the first asleep. time you've mentioned it at 121. No, it's fucking awesome because Ennio Morricone did all the spaghetti western shit, like all the uh, Sergi Leone uh, spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood, you know, all those soundtracks are terrific. Uh, and this is a departure, and this is one of the few movies that uh, John Carpenter didn't do the soundtrack for. And John Carpenter actually does pretty good soundtracks himself for his films. And but this one, oh, it's just so foreboding. Uh, simple, like that simple synthesizer just pulsing in the background creeps me the fuck out. Like, I still listen to that on my iPod, falling to sleep every now and again. Just totally puts the zap on me. I just get this crazy chill. Uh, that's brilliant. The use of blue lighting, the use of darkness. Uh, there's some great shit. Like when, uh, I want to say it's Fuchs is in, in the room when the power's gone out with the lighter. And then that shadow goes across the doorway. Oh, yeah, there's that, that, there's that big atonal, uh, strings. Yeah. Oh, that's just amazing. Uh, that's, that's that, that right there. And I don't see shit like that in movies. And it's just a whole atmospheric thing. The isolation. I can't say enough awesome things about the thing that fucking Ebert just shat all over with his half-witted review. Look, we've seen Ebert phone it in. Oh he phoned it in. He does it sometimes. How did not, the-, the thing with Ebert is he's one of those guys that's got moments of brilliance. But he can be pretty pedestrian about 20% of the time. Well, obviously, time has borne out Ebert's sh- shitty review as 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 kind of a hack piece, right? I mean, we're, yeah, I mean, you could tell he was probably rushed for a a, de- a line. He wasn't in the mood. Look, it happens. I I go in the you know that's the way we all have bad days. We're thirty one years on, and this movie is still brilliant and watchable, and not really that cheesy. Uh, Rod Bottom, who did Bottom Botten. Yeah, Rod Botton and Stan Lee. Is it Stan Lee? No, Stan Winston. Yeah. Who who did the uh, effects uh, are just did an amazing job. And yeah, they're nice practical effects. We didn't talk about it, but No, the practical really effects are just stupendous. And and the practical effects come into such light when you watch the 2011 oh, the thing. Yeah, you could tell they did they did their computer stuff on the cheap. It was really Oh, shame. and and everything like the, the the creatures moving at light speed, which is ridiculous. It's not doing this slow, creaky. Well, it does you both. Know. Yeah, I just I I hoped. I did I like prayed. the scene in the new one where it flies out of the ice block. Oh god, I thought that, I thought that was pretty cool. No, you didn't. Did you really? Yeah, I thought that uh, was a nice scene. I, thought that was I don't see lamest. why you wouldn't see. That. I thought that was pretty nicely done. <sighs> Really? You're that disappointed well, by that one scene? Well, it was just it defied the, the nature of the beast. My, I, I don't see where I don't see why it okay. defies the nature right. of the beast, but fair enough. All right, I, I I liked I liked the original effects. I always like I like the matte paintings, even with the spaceship. I just like all that stuff that that vintage look that the movie get, gives you, and it's extremely contrasted with the new version, which is kind of a good reason to go see the new version. 
or the the prequel, as it were. Yeah, it wasn't terrible. It doesn't totally make sense. And it nah, it doesn't make sense. wasn't that good and kind of forgettable. But, you know, uh, it was an homage, and uh, uh, I give him credit for that. So, anyway. All right. Well, we got to get moving on here. So, what's the movie next week, Marcus? Well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, as I've said before, two names sort of bubble to the surface uh, in our first 100 podcasts, Dan O'Bannon and Dan John O'Bannon. Yeah. So I'm going to start with Dan O'Bannon. I want to do some deep cuts, but let's keep it simple. First off, let's see a movie that's generally well-reviewed. He wrote and directed it called, it's a zombie movie called Return of the Living Dead. I think I've seen bits of it before. I think it has a little more fun with zombies. Maybe a little more along the guy lines of a movie I really liked from our first 100 episodes, uh, Dead Alive. Though I don't think it's quite as slapdash as that. I want to say that it's been recommended to me a few times. I think Will recommended it to me. I think somebody uh, emailed us in and told us to review it at one point. So uh, I'm on board with it. And uh, actually, we're not doing another director because John Carpenter uh, directed the Dark Star, which Dan O'Bannon wrote. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're we're officially right yeah. Although we've I actually, just, we've actually finally pulled the trigger on the rule that we lifted. Yeah, I just did it forty so, episodes ago. Take that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, until next week. Tell you what, why don't you just trust in the Lord? <laughs>